you know, I just want my book to be useful in a child's life when the moment is right. I guess if there was one hope, I would just hope that this would make them seek out books that are not so popular, which are different, which feature different characters of different names and colors and religions, just so, so that it exposes them. But I leave it up to my readers to what they want to take out of my book. You're listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo, where we help people get smarter about culture by talking to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. In this episode, we speak to Sana Rafi, a Pakistani-American author who began her writing journey at the age of 10, but didn't find her own voice as an author until she became a mother. It was then that she started writing picture books that reflected her experiences growing up as an immigrant who is Muslim and Pakistani. Her new children's book, A Mermaid Girl, draws on these inspirations as it depicts the first time a young girl wears a burkini. In our conversation, we talk about how Sana discovered her voice writing children's books, how her identity as a practicing Muslim shapes her body of work, and what kind of impact she wants to have on future generations of young readers, and so much more. Hosting this conversation is Avi Schaefer, Creative Director at Sanders Wingo. Enjoy the show. So I just want to say thanks for being here. This is going to be great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Good. Your name, Sana Rafi. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. I was named after my grandfather's uh, father, actually, whose name was Sana Ol Rafi. And the story that I've been told is that my mom really wanted me to name Sana. This is a name that was uh, very much trending in the 80s. So a lot, I meet a lot of women, like Pakistani or Muslim women, who are my age, who are named Sana. So oftentimes I'll go to a party and there's like a bunch of Sanas because it was just trending. And my mom tells me that it wasn't, it wasn't something that my dad was really into and he wasn't really agreeing to it. But my grandpa, my dad's dad, uh, knew that my mom wanted to name me Sana. And he was like, you know what? It was my dad's name. It was Sana. It was just said a little bit differently. And then my dad was like, oh, okay, I love it. So that's how I got my name. That's so cool. And I think, you know, there's even a phrase like what's in a name. I grew up with the name Avi, which is short for Avram. And I still remember the first day of school every single day having to like raise my hand and correct people on on how to say my name. So I feel like names mean a lot more than people give them credit for it. But your name is so beautiful and it's so smart and so unique. I think that's really cool. That name and the history of that is cool. But like, how does that then go into like who you are like tell us a little bit about yourself where you're from what you do sure yeah so as you know my name is Sana Rafi and I'm originally from Pakistan I was born and raised in Pakistan until I was about 12 years old um, and that's when I immigrated to Switzerland and that's kind of I think where my story actually begins in a nutshell, I'm a children's book author, and it has been a dream of mine to, to be an author since I was a kid. So I'm very lucky that I am living that dream right now. My debut was released last year in October, and I have three more books coming out. 
one this year and then two which have not just been which haven't been announced yet but um i've i've signed the book deal so at some point in the future they'll be out yeah i mean you know i i had a very happy childhood in pakistan i was surrounded by community surrounded by love and i you know as as a child i really didn't know of any problems that existed um because i had i loved my school i lived in a big house with my grandparents and i was growing up with my cousins who would come over every friday it was you know fridays are a day of holiday in in muslim countries so it was a day off from school and i would i used to go to a christian school so sundays were also off but we would go to school on saturdays so my weekend was always broken up but it was wonderful and lots of cousins would come over every friday i mean fridays were such sacred days for us because it would just be a big feast and lots of running around and watching cricket for hours and hours on tv cuz i grew up with basically all all the males in in my family extended and my dad and my brother just addicted to cricket so we would just all sit and watch cricket and then uh you know all of that kind of changed very quickly when i immigrated and life became extremely lonely we were just very isolated um in switzerland i have no qualms about saying that it was you know i felt that switzerland was you know i definitely experienced racism there i'm not sure if everybody does but i sure did and my parents definitely did so i think that that's when i became um i was always writing as a kid i was writing in pakistan um but i think in switzerland i became much more of a an introvert and really kind of went into my shell yeah from there you know my writing journey kind of just took dips and turns in terms of what i was writing and yeah i kind of just continued until i had my kid and once i had my kid i think i started on an upward trajectory again because it, he completely changed me and i was introduced to children's books and i think i found some light in my writing before that i was writing very serious dark stuff not necessarily dark but definitely more literary and more serious and then i discovered children's books and i discovered a new voice and i think i needed it at that point so that's that's kind of in a nutshell a little bit of my journey that's amazing speaking of writing like where's the playbook for that that journey from a homeland to a new place that might not have the same environment you know one thing that we saw that was really cool was that on your site you you talked about and this kind of aligns with with that sense of loneliness you, you writing these like lengthy letters and pen pals right and even getting published in us magazine like is that the us magazine that we're thinking of well, i don't know if you guys know of it it was a part of a newspaper in pakistan it was just like this like us magazine in in pakistan yeah different <laughs> us magazine than the one that <laughs> yes <laughs> definitely that's that's cool i love that there's that that parallel and that it might do something completely different so you say that it was kind of always in you and you talked about this really rich sense of community where do you think that love of writing came from ah uh, you know sometimes when i do these in person school readings kids will often ask me how did you start writing or you know what made you start writing and i really i think that it was innate i think i was born with it i don't remember a specific moment where i said i'm going to start writing all i remember is that as a young as a very very young student i had a lot of difficulty with math and i had an incredible teacher in english 
And, you know, I think that was the one thing that I held on to because I was good at it. And it wasn't difficult for me as math was and other other stuff was. I was never a, you know, super bright straight A student, but English was something that I always had, I think, from a young age. So that's when I, I think it was always in me. I remember doing lots and lots of pretend play, pretending that I'm a journalist. That's kind of what I wanted to be. And I remember when I got my glasses, I was like seven or eight. And I was so excited because I was like, now I'm a real journalist. And I would just like for hours pretend that I'm a journalist in front of a mirror. And I'd have this bag and I'd open it up. And I'd be like, in today's news. And I would just, I would love watching news and all of that. And for a long time, I was convinced that I was going to be a journalist. And sometimes I do, I do wish that I had become one. Growing up, I think I still felt, I felt like always out looking inwards And I think I still do. I think I'm still that person. So I think I've always felt different in some way. So I turned to books. I would read in the dark and that's when I got glasses. And I really didn't grow up with a lot of books Um, in Pakistan, like no children's books whatsoever. I would not think really. I did not know what a picture book was. And yeah, I think I would just read some British books that we would get in Pakistan. I would just devour whatever I could. And I remember discovering Sweet Valley High and my mom was like, no, you can't read this. You're like 10, so you can't read this. And, but I remember reading it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, I did not have a lot of access to books, to be honest. So I would just write. And then I, in that Us magazine, they would have these pen pals and I would just be like, oh my God, another chance to write. So I would send out these letters. But then I started getting all these letters back from males. And my mom was like, what are you doing? Again, I was like really young. So she was like, who are these random males writing to you? And I was, I was just a kid. So I, I didn't know what was going on. So she made me stop. Except for she said I could continue with like the female pen pals. So there was one girl called Shazia and she lived in the UK. And I stayed in touch with her and I'm still friends with her today. So that started when I was eight, nine and we just wrote letters and I just wanted a chance to write. Mm, that's what I was looking for. Another passion of mine is this idea of like flow and being in the zone. Do you remember that, like discovering that as a writer, the first time that you like sat down and started writing and then looked up and like five hours later, you were like, oh my gosh, where was I? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I've only ever experienced flow while writing. I've not experienced it doing anything else, unfortunately. I mean, I do wish that I had other passions and other interests, but this has only happened to me with writing. And I do, you know, I do almost now think of it as a companion. Like, I think I never used to, but I think that, I think it's going to be my companion in old age, to be honest. I think that's what's going to keep me going. And I think that it means more to me, I think, than a relationship or person could, because I think it's something that is always there for me. But I don't remember, like, specifically the first time that I was in a flow, but I remember a specific incident where I had had a conflict with a friend in high school, and it was you know, the internet had just come out and we had just chatted online on the messenger. I remember getting very, very upset and heated up about it. When we finished chatting, um, I came into my room and I closed my door and I grabbed a piece of paper and I started started writing because I didn't. And and that's the first incident I remember where I had to kind of journal what happened. Um, But I think I was always doing it. I just wasn't aware of it until that very moment where, and I I remember that very vividly. So, You had mentioned a little bit before about the inspiration for picture books and children's books, but after your journey and being at this point in your career, where do you think that inspiration really came from? 
where was the thing or that one moment or the culmination of what was the recipe that led to you being so passionate and brave to like be like I'm going to start writing kids books right like that's a that's like a, everyone would love to write kids books it's not like they hand those those book deals out to everyone so uh, to give you a little bit of context you know I did creative I studied creative writing in college much to my dad's dismay you know, I changed my major. I lied to him. I said, I'll do business in eco. And I was, and then I, I changed it. I never told him until the very end. Then I moved to New York and I was working. After that, I got into Columbia's creative writing program. It's the only program I got into. I applied to seven. I did not get into any others. And I took it. And, you know, once I went there, I focused on literary fiction. And that was my goal. That was my dream. And that's who I wanted to be. I want to write novels and I was well on the path of doing that. While at Columbia, I got married. I did long distance. When I moved, I conceived and I was like, oh crap. I, you know, what, what's going on? I was only 27. I was absolutely not ready for a child. I was working on, I didn't have a work visa in the U.S. I didn't have a job, so I couldn't work. And I remember being like, I remember being on a call with a professor at Columbia as well, talking about my thesis. And I was like, I've got to finish this novel. But it was this like really just big, gigantic project that I couldn't get behind. You know, I think I, it was about Pakistan. I think I needed to be physically in Pakistan to write it at that point. And then I had my kid and my, my life completely changed. I'd never been around kids. I had no idea and no idea whatsoever about kids or babies. I was the first one in my friend's group to have a baby. And that, you know, my son completely changed my life. In, in the best way possible. And I think when I had him, I was like, well, he's got to read. And I was like, what, what do I read him? Um, I had no idea. So I went to Barnes and Noble and I went to some bookstores and be like, what do kids read? Because I had no access to those books. I had no idea that children's literature existed in the shape of board books and picture books. So I remember walking into a bookstore and buying all these books for him. And he was just a few months old. And that's when I got introduced to children's books, but I was still very adamant on writing my own novel. So I remember hiring a babysitter and, you know, just, just figuring out ways to go and write my novel. And then I would switch to short stories. And I remember one time I applied, I, like I sent in a story to the New Yorker and I got a reply from them. And they said, we actually really like it, but we don't have space for it. Can you try us again? And I was like, that's it. This is, you know, I'm going to get published in the New Yorker. Like, this is my goal. But it was really, really hard. It was, it was, I, I found myself like dragging my feet. And one day a friend of mine was like, why don't you write children's books? Because it was about 2016. There was a call for Muslim writers to produce children's books. There was no children. There were no Muslim children's books out there. So there was no book in which my son could see himself. Apart from being Muslim, there was no book in which he could identify with a character whose name sounded like his or different, whose name was not James or, you know, any of those typical names that we see in the U.S. And I was like, man, children's books. So she put that idea in my head. And I remember at that point, I think Simon and Schuster were, was, they had started this new thing called Salam Reads, which was call for Muslim authors to submit work. And I tried doing that. I hired an editor and I tried writing a book and I thought, of course, I can write a children's book. Of course, that's what I thought. And I got tons and tons of rejections. And I realized that I was trying to run away from my novel by writing something quick and fast, like a children's book. And I realized that, no, this is challenging. This is actually not easy to do. And they're not accepting my work. I'm not getting an agent. I'm not getting a yes from anybody. 
And I think I really took that challenge on because I was I was very intrigued by it. Um, and at this point, I had read thousands of picture books to my kid. So and I had a big collection. So I knew what I had to do. And I, you know, I kind of just took it on as a challenge. And, you know, I kept working on it for a few years until I got um, until I got an offer. So that's how I was introduced to it. What's your first book, Seeds of Promise, about? And where did that idea come from? Yeah, the book is based basically on my own immigration experience. I knew I knew I wanted to write about what it's like to be an immigrant. That's what I was working on in Colombia as well. I just never left my heart, I think, because it impacted me so profoundly. So when I started writing children's book, I started writing about that experience because my son was involved in a school with lots of international students, lots of immigrants, lots of kids whose parents were immigrants, just like my son. And I, I really, I thought there was a space for it. And I was like, I think these kids need to see themselves in a book where they don't feel alone because I sure did. And I didn't have any, I didn't have any book to turn to when I moved to Switzerland. And I really, really wish I had. I think somebody like me could have really used a character that was going through the same thing as me. It was also inspired by this one particular flower that only grows in South Asia. And that smell is, you cannot find it anywhere else. It's a particular smell of jasmine. And you cannot find it anywhere else. But if you were to go to South Asia, you would smell it and you would immediately know and you'd never forget it. It's a very popular scent and flower back home. And it was just, you know, when I think of back home, I think of that scent and I, I can't find it anywhere. It's almost like a metaphor. I'm a nostalgic person by nature. Unfortunately, I'm always looking in the past instead of looking in the future. So I was writing about that. And that's kind of where it came from. I was, I was adamant about writing about my own experience. That's amazing. And almost like Planting Seeds, Seeds of Promise, first book. You have a new book called A Mermaid Girl. It's being released in the summer. And it's about the first time a little girl wears a burkini. Yes. So for those who don't know what a burkini is, could you tell, tell us a little bit more about that, how it influenced the book and what that book is? Not only like what it's about, but what it's trying to do. Yeah, so a burkini is basically a swimsuit that is fully covered. It can come in any shape and form as long as it's fully covered. So, you know, your sleeves, you have full sleeves and you have, you're basically wearing tights all the way up to your ankles. And it's not a traditional swimsuit. And it's something that has become kind of popular. Now people know what a burkini is in the last few years. It's what women wear in Muslim countries. And I wanted to write about this because, again, there's a story behind it. I was very young when I remember my dad asking me if I wanted to swim. And I, I remember saying no, one, because I had a fear of water, but two, because I remember I was old enough to know that you can't really go in front of my dad in a swimsuit. And I don't really want to, you know, how can I wear a swimsuit? Like I, I was old enough to know that even though in Pakistan and many other Muslim countries, the pool is like all female only and they wear tradition, they wear regular swimsuits because it's just women. But I remember feeling like I can't. And at the same time, my brother was doing competitive swimming and getting up at 5 a.m. So my dad was like, why don't you join too? And I just said no. And there was no further conversation. To this date, I do not know how to swim. And I've bought myself a burkini and I, I love it and I wear it. I just wore it recently in Hawaii as well. And I got, I, I had a woman approach me and she was complimenting me and I felt so good about it. But, you know, it's, it's just, I think I wanted to write about it because I just, I think that there needs to be a conversation around what girls and women are wearing and, you know, what they're comfortable in. I, I do have a daughter and if she, she doesn't want to wear one, I'm not going to force her to wear one. But I think I was that little girl who felt uncomfortable in a traditional swimsuit. 
And because just because of that, I didn't get to learn to swim. And because of that, I haven't learned swimming even now because whatever swimsuit I have found up until now, until I found my burkini, I felt uncomfortable in it. You know, I don't know what it's like to wear shorts and I don't know what it's like because I've never worn them and I've never really kind of, even when I grew up, I didn't feel like I wanted to. So I've never exposed my legs fully. And I now know that this is a uniform that you can wear in a pool. So if my grown daughter wants to wear it, I have no qualms about it. But I was that person that couldn't do it. And I know there are lots and lots of Muslims who are very particular about this. And I have friends who's, uh, who are very particular about their daughters and what they wear to the beach. And from a very young age, because they want to instill this in them, you know, so that when they grow up, they grow up like me, where they were like, I can't wear this. So a little bit of manipulation there too, for sure. But I mean, for me, it was done through culture where I was growing up in a country, Pakistan. And right, so I think, I, I think that conversation needs to be had that, you know, this needs to be made accessible and then whether or not we choose to wear it is up to us. So it's a, it's the story is just about a girl who wears a burkini to her pool and, you know, kind of what that's like, because being different is not easy. I know that feeling. You talked about conversations and having that conversation. It's so important for us to communicate, right? Like to have these conversations, whether they're difficult or easy or whatever that is. What do you hope kids get from your books? You know, I've been asked this question before and I, you know, I don't have any particular hopes for what kids, because kids, because we're all different and, you know, we all take different things from different books. I've read so many books and if you were to ask me what I took from this in this book, I may not even remember that book, but I remember reading it and loving it in that moment. You know, I just want my book to be useful in a child's life when the moment is right. You know, I think that's that's all I can really hope for. I don't really expect children to take much from my books. I guess if there was one hope, I would just hope that this would kind of make them seek out books that are not so popular, which are different, which feature different characters, characters of different names and colors and religions, just so, so that it exposes them. But, you know, I, I leave it up to my reader as to what they want to take out of my book. That's kind of the difference between art and advertising, right? Like, you have such a purpose and with art it's kind of more like I'm making something that's special to me I want to communicate and share with my audience but how you interpret that is yours right exactly it's entirely up to them yeah what's the hardest thing you've ever had to write I'm not sure I mean you know the children's books after the first one they've kind of almost descended on me they've come to me easily I think the hardest thing that I've had to write has definitely just been that novel that I was working on. One thing, one big project that I keep putting off that I know is going to be extremely hard for me, which is why I haven't gone to it yet, is about my own birth experience and about the lack of maternal care in the U.S. It's mind-boggling that in a country like U.S., you don't have maternal care. You have infant care. You don't, you don't give a rat's ass about women giving birth and what they're what their health is like. And it's, it's just the focus is always on a baby. And I, I think coming from countries like Pakistan, you, you know, this would never, ever happen. The entire focus is on mother. So I think I had a very, very negative experience in the U.S. And I'm not alone. I now know lots and lots of women who've experienced trauma and continue to do so. And I think that there's a story that needs to be told about that. But, you know, I think because it's so personal and it's so painful, I think that's going to be like the hardest book to write ever. And I keep pushing it off because I'm not there mentally. But, you know, 
I don't know if you've read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, but she talks about how ideas come to you. And if, if you don't act on them, then they go to somebody else. So this idea has been on me, but I've, I'm afraid that if I don't act on it, it'll go to somebody else because I'm not acting on it. And maybe it does belong to somebody else. But for now, I, I think I think about that book often and I think it needs to be out there. There's nothing about it out there right now. It's also interesting that you talked about the difference between mom care in the States and back home. You know, we, we do this podcast to get smarter about culture. Mm-hmm and race and ethnicity and identity and all those things and and how they they shape culture. In terms of of race and ethnicity and identity, how do you identify yourself? Yeah, I identify myself as a Pakistani American now because I've been in the US for many years. I came here when I was 18, I'm 38 now. And I only lived in Pakistan for 11 years, but It'll always, it'll always be the, the place that, you know, kind of where my roots are. So, yeah, that's how I identify myself. I am also a practicing Muslim. And how does this identity shape your work? Oh, it entirely shapes my work. I mean, for sure. It, it just, I don't think I could ever write anything that's not, you know, kind of impacted by, by whom I am. Um, I really am passionate about kind of showcasing Muslim characters in books and that's not to say I mean I'm not very religious I you know I I don't even offer five prayers a day which we're supposed to but I identify with this because I think that there need to be books out there that are just different and what what I mean by that is that you know if you go to the library or if you go to a bookstore you'll find hundreds and hundreds of books on Christmas and Hanukkah and that's fair because we don't live in a Muslim country this is not where we celebrate Eid we celebrate Christmas here all over the nation. So that's fair. But what's not fair is that there's, there are millions of Muslims in the U.S. There's, there's a ton of African-Americans who are Muslims um, residing all over New York and everywhere else. And where are their books? Where, what books can they read to their kids that are not featuring a, a white kid in a Christmas book, um, you know, or that are featuring even a Black kid celebrating Islam, right? Like, where, where, where are those books? So I think that that's kind of become my, the, the thing that is pushing me. It's kind of like become like a mini movement in me that there needs to be enough books out there for kids. So I think that that's always going to be part of why I continue writing about Muslim or Pakistani people or about, you know, generally immigrants, about people who are not, that who may not fall, fall in the, the norm. And that's, there's a long way to go. I mean, that's a, that's a huge social movement but luckily we do have new platforms like social and you where our voices have such a different kind of reach and you do an amazing job spotlighting books written by authors from diverse backgrounds I mean it's just oh thank you as a creative I think that's part of our responsibility is to is to support that can you tell us a little bit more about that practice and your just your passion for diverse literature in general? The publishing industry is changing. I, we do have a long way to go, but it is changing. I think that there is more and more awareness of the need for diverse books. There's movements around it and there's, you know, authors are very vocal about it now on Twitter and everywhere else. And publishers are publishing diverse books. So there's been a change. And I think they see that. 
So I think that we need to celebrate that as opposed to say, as opposed to bash it and say, where were they 10 years ago? No, we are on a very, very amazing journey. So I think that's wonderful. And I just want to be, I think it's fairly new. And I think I've never been really anybody who kind of jumps on the bandwagon of any trends or sort of like, ooh, this is new, let me do this. But this is the one thing where I really kind of did feel like a connection with it. And I, I thought, no, I, I, I really do want to be part of this. And this, this could again be, you know, because I never had access to children's books. I never read them, but I, I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to have a house or a home full of like books. So I think I, I became very passionate about giving that to my kids and giving that to other kids, right? It doesn't have to be a home full of books, but you should be able to walk into a library and, and find a book where a character looks like you, just physically even, um, or just their name, or maybe they call their mom the same thing that you call your mom. That's, you know, that little bit of detail is enough to make you feel like, um, okay, I'm not, I'm not that different. I'm not, you know, I'm part of this. Like, I'm, I'm, I belong here. My family belongs here. or My people who are like me belong here. So that feeling of otherness kind of, you know, disappears slowly with time. And, you know, I, I don't feel that otherness right now as an adult in the U.S. I live in California. I'm very lucky to live in North California. It's very, very very diverse, very progressive. So I've never felt that way in the U.S. I mean, I, I absolutely love living here, but I'm sure that there are parts of the U.S. where people feel that. I haven't felt it, but I definitely felt it in, in Switzerland. So I think that's kind of where my passion comes for diverse books. And as a, you know, when I, when I show the books on my Instagram, it's basically just to kind of build awareness that there, there's books out there. And I, you know, I try not to only promote Muslim books, but books that I, that I enjoy. I love reading books about Asians. I'm not sure what my obsession is, but I absolutely love it. I, I love sharing those books as well. And any, just any book that I come across that I think is, is great, I'll share it on there. You had mentioned your audience or audiences general being able to see names that they can associate with or colors that they can associate with. We hear so much of that in the news, right? When these new elected officials or when these people are coming in and they're like, this is for those little girls to be able to see themselves in us. You know what I mean? As role models. I hate to use the word role model because that, that again is different for all of us. But how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a role model? Like, hmm, I've never thought about that. Um, I hope to be a role model for my kids. Um, you know, and I think I'll leave it um, at that. Like, I don't, don't know if I can be a role model or if I am a role model for anybody else, but I think I want to make a very deliberate, sort of like take a very deliberate action as to make sure that I am somebody that they can look up to. And I think I'd be very happy if that happened. And I think that's, that's, that's it for me. I think that, you know, usually, this is my belief. I think that role models exist in our homes or in our families. I think that's where they should exist so that you have close access to them. I don't think that they should exist somewhere outward so that you can just kind of, because you don't get an accurate picture. You don't know who they are. You don't know what they do. You don't know what their beliefs are. You just see a picture. So I think that it's important to have role models in your family in close proximity. And growing up, I didn't have one. So I think that's why it becomes more of a a, you know, call for action for me to do it deliberately for my kids. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense that we sometimes choose our role models and don't really know anything about them. Yeah. Like we just see what they want us to see and are like, oh, I want to be like that. And in the background, they could be doing who knows what, you know, like that's that's a really cool point. I never thought of it that way. I would be shocked if you're not a role model to some people on your social platform that are saying, hey, look, you know, like this is a great platform that she's creating to be able to show kids themselves in these books, but also show kids who aren't like that, the diversity, right? Like, because it's kind of there's there's a double responsibility when you are in a position that you're in to not only be able to show people like you more of things about you, but people who aren't like you, what it's like to be you, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's dual because it's responsibilities for both both parties, right? And um, for sure, yeah. I mean, I want all the other kids to also have access to these books and to say, oh, cool, this is awesome. And nowadays I think it's more apt because I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, my kids have friends from all over the world or from all over. And they, they all look different. I mean, their parents might be immigrants, but, you know, they're, they're all, they, some, many of them are bilingual. I mean, my son isn't, but, you know, many of them are. And I, I just see a lot of diversity around me. And again, I understand that it could be just because of where I live. But I don't know. Is that the case with you? Are you in Austin? I live in Texas. So Austin's a little bit better, but there is, it's a different, Texas is a slightly different environment, as you might yeah. imagine, than California, and especially Northern California. But I do notice that my kids have diverse groups of friends and almost seek it out. Yeah. You know, like I think this new generation and hopefully our generations just become more open and smarter as we go. But especially this new one is like color, orientation, all those things. They recognize the value of it much more. I, I was made very aware of it in my household. Yeah. But it wasn't as much of, I didn't inherently recognize the value that all of that diversity brings. And I feel like kids these days, because of books like yours, recognize this stuff as value, you know, not only in their personal relationships, but their growth and all those things. So I applaud you for it. I think it's oh, thank you. beautiful. I think it's so cool. And we're, we're talking about social things and social platforms and the responsibilities that we have or not. What's your favorite social platform to kind of help spread your work or engage with others and and then why why is that that social platform your favorite you know I think it has to be Instagram even though I'm not super regular on it but I like to post on Instagram even though Twitter seems to be much more popular with writers there's a very big writers community on Twitter lots of authors and I am on Twitter but I think just generally being an introvert I don't have much to say on Twitter. I don't really know what to tweet about, but I think that on Instagram, I can take a picture of a book and write about that. And that, that comes much easier to me. So that is, that is the only platform that I'm actually really just kind of on. I find that to be something consistent in these podcasts that we do, because we're usually interviewing creatives. I think creatives really are drawn to Instagram because it's such a good storytelling platform. Like you get to be visual and then write something cool about it. Yeah, especially because the, the children's books are so beautiful that I don't have to say much. Like, I just want to show the book because it's so captivating, usually. You're looking at all these other writers. You're posting about it to support the cause. And you said that you're not trendy, even though you might be a trend. <laughs> are there trends in the children's book space that you're really excited about? Or trends that you would, I mean, even further, 
is there anything that you would ever want to start or a new pivot or something like that? But first and foremost, what are you excited about that's happening in this space? Lots of things. I mean, you know, I think movements like We Need Diverse Books, like they have lots of mentorship opportunities for authors like myself, and we can apply and be mentored by other authors who have more experience than us, who are more widely published than us, to kind of guide us on the different changes that the industry is experiencing and kind of what the publishers are looking for in terms of books. But also for us, I also have had opportunities where I can kind of now provide feedback to emerging um, writers who want to be published. And I have enough insight now to tell them what will work, what will not work. And I think some of that stuff is very exciting because we're building a community very actively. And I think that's, you know, the hard work we need to do right now to kind of keep bringing more writers in. And I think like, again, for me, when I realized that there was a call for Muslim books and, you know, just, I couldn't believe it. Like it was like a, a huge door opening for me. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be published. I would not be a tourist book author. I wouldn't have written about a bear or a rabbit going to school. And I, even if I had, I would have, I don't think I would have been published. I think I needed this specific um, door to open. And I think now that it is open, we kind of need to bring in more community members who might be talented and who might be just really passionate about writing, but don't really know how to go about it. You know, there was a lot of trial and error, lots of rejections, years and years until I found an agent who wanted to represent me. So I think that I have enough insight now to kind of guide other people. And there, and there are people who are seeking these opportunities out and actually providing mentorship opportunities. So I'm excited about that. There's an amazing organization called the Highlights Foundation, and they're based in Pennsylvania. Last year, they had an application for Muslim authors like myself to apply and to come, you know, live out this retreat in Pennsylvania. And I applied among, you know, a handful of other Muslim authors and I didn't get it, but I was a finalist. So they gave me like a free course that I could take online. But I, I saw pictures and videos of all the people who did go on that retreat. And it just, wow, I mean, to be able to give them that opportunity to sit with like-minded authors and to talk about what are we going to do in the future? What kind of books are we all writing? Oh, it's so awesome. And can, you know, can, can there be books about Eid, for example? Can there be multiple books, just like there are multiple books about Christmas? Or if you're writing about Eid, should I not write about Eid? Where are we? You know, where can, can we do this? Can we also imagine a world where there are hundreds of books about one festival? So I think that's, that's really cool. Um, and there's very far and few opportunities, only one, right, that I'm, that I'm aware of. But I hope that in the future, there's multiple ones. I hope that there's, you know, I, I'm not counting on this one retreat. I hope that there's more that I can choose from. And I hope that same opportunity is out there for people who are looking for mentors. It's not just like three to choose from, but hundreds to choose from. So I think that's what I'm excited about. I think we have some good changes coming up. Gosh, that's, I mean, that's very, just the idea of having hundreds of books about that. That leads me to think like, what if those books were in Pakistan? Like, are there trends that you would, would want to start in the children's book space? And I don't want to use trends because I feel like that has a negative connotation, but is there, you use the word movement. I love that. Are there, are there things, are there journeys that you want to start within this space, either intentionally or as a byproduct of what you're doing for children's books? 
You know, I'm not entirely sure. This is something that I've thought about. Um, I remember applying for this um, scholarship when I was at Columbia and I wrote about how I wanted to provide an opportunity for girls in Pakistan to write creatively. You know, I mean, I think this is a universal thing. Nobody really, no, no parent really goes out there and says, I want you to become a writer. No, you know, it's very much like, please do math, please become an engineer, please provide a living for yourself. And this is very much the case in South Asia. I mean, in Pakistan, like, you know, and I told my parents I wanted to be a writer, they were like, just shoot me. My dad was like, I'm going to send you to the US for college. I'm going to spend thousands of dollars on your tuition. You want to be a writer? Like, I mean, this was just like, they were like, we give up, we give up, you know, just, just do what you want. So but I, I think there's so many authors whose dreams, so many writers whose dreams just die, right? They die right there. They, and nobody kills dreams more than parents. I think, you know, parents are the number one killers of dreams. So I think I just wish I could provide an opportunity, especially for girls, but also for boys. Maybe it's even more difficult for boys, right, to do something like this, to be like, I want to be a writer. But I think if there were these top-notch, amazing classes, like creative writing classes, maybe parents wouldn't hesitate so much. And maybe these boys and girls could have opportunities to write and read books that they've never heard of and authors that they've never heard of. Um, And, you know, I think that you don't need to be in grad school to get access to those books like I did. Like, I think you can, if you are passionate about it, I think you can absorb those books at 16, 17, 18. So I don't know. I think that um, it's 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 a dream of mine, but I don't, you know, I'm not sure. It's not a trend as such, but it is something that I want to take back to Pakistan because I think that they're, that country is full of stories. Josh, those kids need books. They need books. Yeah. And they need a permission to tell their stories, mm. you know? And that's a big dream. Takes yeah. a lot of stuff, which kind of miraculously as things do, leads into the next question. You know, as an ad agency, we do a lot of partnering and things like that. We always want to know if there are organizations or brands that you would like to partner with to support those causes you care about. Like what what organization would you have to partner with to be able to do that kind of outreach? Are there organizations that you want to partner with or think about? And Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's, um, you know, We Need Diverse Books is an organization that is, you know, front and center of this movement. There, So we absolutely, I would love to partner with them. There's also an incredible university in Pakistan called LAMS. And it is, it is, you know, one of the, if not the most prestigious university in Pakistan. And, you know, lots and lots of grads come to the U.S. and just kill it in the U.S. because they're such brilliant students. And I think that I would love to partner with them. I would love to partner with those undergraduates who have a vision for something like this. Because now LAMS does offer a creative writing program. My friend uh, who I met at Columbia went back and introduced it. And he's a professor there. And, you know, man, he has students coming into him who are just mind blown, right? So he took something that he got from Columbia and took it home. But he's just one person, right? And he's doing such a profound work there. But I think that there's, again, if there was somebody like him who could go back and then do that, like if there's more people like that, then there's, you know, so we, I think I would love to partner with Lums. I would love to work with my friend Bilal again. He's also a published author. But I don't, you know, I'm not sure if I rely that much on partnerships in terms of the stuff that I want to do individually. I mean, of course, I would need help on that step, but I think that it really does start with a seed. It does really just start with you, kind of. 
starting the whole thing. And who knows, I might, me or anybody else might form their own organization and that becomes the trend. That's very good storytelling. We started with the seed and circled that. <laughs> <laughs> you, must, you must do this for a living. <laughs> yeah. Who, who are some of the people or organizations that you follow? I do follow this one called Go Read PK. And it's, it's based in Pakistan. And this is a, you know, they're kind of very passionate about literary movement in Pakistan because in Pakistan, there's a very high illiteracy rate. Just because apart from the main cities in Pakistan, apart from very, very privileged people like myself who had access to education and really good schools, you know, you'll see kids on streets, you'll see kids on, they're begging, they're, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll see lots and lots of children being neglected. Um, and because also because of poverty. So, you know, I think I, I follow this um, Go Read PK because they really are trying to make books more accessible in Pakistan. And they've also reached out to me to kind of how can we make your book accessible back home? And, you know, they're kind of recognizing the work that we are doing here in the U.S. and understanding that these books could also still be something that kids would enjoy back home, even though it's a story about immigration, even though these kids have never left Pakistan. So I like them. I do follow We Need Diverse Books and the Highlights Foundation. And I don't think there are that many more, to be honest. I follow authors that I love and whose work I really want to kind of follow. Who are your top three authors that you're following? Oh, I have so many. I mean, I love, I love Joanna Ho because I just love her platform is also just very much about education. And, you know, she's really kind of, I think, become a, an industry leader. I really go to her page to see what is she recommending, what books are out there. And she's Asian American, but she will highlight many other books as well. So I love her work. I love, I'm, I'm not good with names, but I, I read, just read this book by this author. It's called All My Rage. And she's a Pakistani American author who has previously written fantasy books. And this is her literary, first literary book that she has thousands and thousands and thousands of followers, like diehard fans. And I love following her too, because I think she has written, I think will just stay with you, like stay with me forever and ever and ever. And I just really kind of want to follow her journey. And she talks a lot about how she decides to be mean to her characters. And I think that's really, really interesting that she on purpose want to kill them or just do something very drastic to them. And I think we all think like that as authors kill your darlings. Like I remember hearing this over and over again. So um, she does it very, you know, effortlessly. So I follow her too. Um, and who else? I feel like I need my Instagram right now. I follow my best friend who her name is uh, Noon Mayal and her handle is Noon Travels. And she was also at NYU. She did her creative writing there. And she's also written a book um, called Seva. And her platform is All Things. It's books and it's about movements in India, about what's happening and how her book is being received and just generally about lifestyle as well. And I follow her, of course, because she's my best friend, but also because I would never know, I think, about all the political stuff that's happening around her book and all the backlash that she may have received because it's a religious book. So in a country, in a secular country like India, if I didn't know her personally, I think I would have love to follow this blog just to see what's going on. How are people reacting to this book, which is about a religion, but it's, you know, it's in a country full of different, different religions. And then lastly, where can we all follow you on social media? 
Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is sruffybooks. And I have the same handle on Twitter. Like I said, I'm not super active on Twitter, but I hop in there once in a while just to kind of say stuff or chat and all of that. Excellent. Well, you you said something really amazing. You said that there was this book that will stay with you forever. You know, this story that will stay with you forever. And I feel lucky to have talked to you. This conversation will stay with me forever. But I am so happy for all those kids and families that get to read your book and have those stories stay with them forever. You know, it's it's such a special thing. Sonorafi, people, this is a brilliant creative and an amazing person. Thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, you're very welcome. I had such a good time. Thank you, Sana, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. Until next time, take care.